1: issue for all women. Hello and welcome to the first Chops of December. Mickey here and I'm guessing that you, like me, are shocked and appalled it is freaking December already. Time, eh? What a bastard. Anyway, I am really chuffed with this Chops because I got to chat with the awesome Mickey berenyi founding member of 1990s alt pop rockers Lush, And yeah, Lady Killers will always be on at least three of my playlists. An author of Fingers Crossed, a no holes barred memoir of her Trixie, and I am putting it very mildly, childhood, and Time in Lush and on the Britpop scene. It is, at times, a brutal, and a heads-up that Mickey and I talk about child sex abuse and neglect in this podcast. She and I are both fairly philosophical about our experiences, now at least, but we are both very keen that these conversations continue to happen, as a reminder that this doesn't just happen over there to someone else. Mickey also smashes any rose-tinted spectacles people might still be clinging onto when looking at the 90s lad culture that underlined Britpop, and let me tell you, she does so gloriously. She is a beautiful writer and, you know, given December is upon us, I can hand on heart recommend Fingers Crossed as an excellent gift for anyone into music and or brilliant, fierce women. Clearly, I liked her a lot. I'm sure you will too. Also, do yourself a solid and have a listen to the deliciously woozy tunes she's making with her current band, Peroshka. A tonal guitars, spacey synth flourishes, sophisticated bass lines and floaty layered vocals. Mm, dreamy. Hello, I'm joined on the Zoom by Mickey Berenji, probably best known as a founding member of late 80s and early 90s alt-rockers Lush, now in Dream Popper's Peroshka, and author of one of the best, most painfully honest music memoirs I've ever read, Fingers Crossed, How Music Saved Me From Success. Mickey, hello. Hello. Note how I'm not calling you Metal Mickey, or Mickey Mouse, (laughs) or Mike. Sympathies, my friend.
0: Yes, we have that common name.
1: I'm slightly fascinated by how you ended up with a name like Mickey. Well, I think you say as part of your memoir that someone insists on calling you Michaela because they think that Mickey's an affected nickname. And mine is, my full name is Michaela, but I've been Mickey since I was very little. Uh huh. Okay, okay. Whereas yours is the real deal.
0: Yes. So, yes, at least you could sort of go, well, that's not actually my name.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I still got punched, though. Oh, no! (laughs) Yay, bullies! Thank you. So I guess I'm going to start with what made you decide to write your memoir?
0: Oh, I was just asked. It was the other way around to what possibly you'd expect in that I wasn't sitting here with some burning desire to write it and thinking this is a story that needs to be told. I was literally offered to write it. And initially I did think that's ridiculous. Who's <laughs> going to care about Mickey from Lush's memoir, you know? But um Peter Selby was setting up nine, eight books. It was like a going to be a music imprint. And he kind of, you know, he was great. He really convinced me. And then I lost my job because the magazine I worked fourfolded and then locked down. So I kind of thought, well, okay, this sounds like maybe it's worth giving it a go. And then I kind of went for it. And it was great that... I think, you know, there was sort of obviously, as you know, there's quite a lot of issues in the book that are quite difficult and sensitive. But weirdly, I think the stuff with Lush was the thing that I was most worried about writing because obviously I don't speak to Emma or Phil anymore. So I was very conscious about how they would feel, you know, probably pissed off with my version of what I felt happened in that band. And I didn't really want to just write a kind of glossed over narrative that matched the usual PR about Lush. I thought this is my chance to actually say what it's like to be in a band and what it's like to experience those things. But I had to tread very carefully. So I was kind of grateful to Pete that when I started writing it, like a huge chunk of it ended up being about my childhood Mm. because I actually felt... I mean, to be honest, I thought that was the most interesting part anyway. I wrote about the band, obviously, because I had to. It's a music memoir. But that was kind of not the least interesting, but the most contentious. The stuff about the childhood, even though that is actually more kind of worrying and sort of concerning, actually, that kind of tripped off a lot easier. The sort of only real difficulty I had It wasn't so much confessing my own stuff. It was that it would be very easy to judge my parents as, well, frankly, quite awful. And they weren't, you know, because I think there's those touch points of the abuse or the certain amount of neglect and all of those. And certainly my dad's kind of very unconventional behavior that would be very easily judged as bad and terrible. But it was trying to balance the... the, notion that, you know, they were very lovely people and quite compelling. They did have a good side and they were a joy to be around most of the time. So just trying to get that across, I think, was a bit of a challenge, mm. you know.
1: I think you do. I'm going to be honest with you, Mickey. I absolutely judge your parents, particularly your mm. dad. And, you know, he doesn't come across in a brilliant light. But I'm also very aware that we we have people in our lives that are the hardest people and the damaging people, but are also our brightest lights. This isn't unusual. Absolutely. I mean, it's
0: difficult. You know, I think people think of that kind of neglect and abuse very much as an extreme. You know, the minute you cross that line and say, Oh, I was abused as a child, people just switch to thinking the worst, worst possible thing, which I totally understand. That's empathetic and people are. You know, oh, my God, that's so awful that that happened to you. But I do think sometimes framing it as the worst possible thing that can happen to anybody becomes a kind of difficult burden in itself. Because I think a lot of people who actually do suffer abuse, it is quite a grey line, you know. Mm. I mean, you've talked about that yourself.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: I think that when you get the terrible, terrible stories of children that are, you know, systematically abused and have violence and all sorts of terrible things. I think sometimes for the rest of us who maybe didn't suffer it quite as extremely as that, it certainly made me feel like, well, maybe I wasn't really abused or maybe it doesn't really count because it's not bad enough.
1: Hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, so just for the listeners, Mickey and I have had a few back and forth on email before this chat because in fingers crossed, you have written about the sexual abuse that happened to you as a child, and you've written about it with heartbreaking candor. And as you've just mentioned, I have spoken before on the podcast about what happened to me as a kid, which and I know this isn't child sex abuse top trumps or anything, but it feels like that was nowhere near as bad as what happened to you. And then you're like, well, that's nowhere near as bad as what happens to a lot of people did still happen though it obviously very much was abuse and I asked you whether you'd be okay to talk about it because there's a big difference in writing something down as a memoir and then having a journalist poke about in that aspect of your life and I absolutely loved your response so yeah could you sort of tell the listeners why you feel it is so important to have these conversations
0: I think it's a lot more common than people think I think people do look at the tabloid headlines and think that it happens in some you know, sex abuse ring in Dewsbury or something, or do you know what I mean? Like it's somewhere else. Bad people do terrible things to very vulnerable girls, and that doesn't happen in a nice place like where we live, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that I know so many women who have, you know, even if it was just one occasion of someone else's dad sticking their hand down their pants or something... It's so much more prevalent Mm. than people think. And I think a lot of people who suffer it feel that they don't want to be branded as that. uh, Sometimes for the reasons that I've said that they think, oh, well, maybe it's not bad enough to talk about. And I'm misery hopping onto somebody. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. But I actually think it's really common. And I think however small that incident is, it's really traumatic. You know, it really messes with you. I was thinking the other day about even, you know, on a slightly different level, like violence in the home. And I do know someone who said, you know, I, I was never punched. I didn't have bruises. It wasn't that bad. But being around that kind of bristling violence and that threat of things being thrown and shouts being made was actually just as damaging, yeah. you know, where someone became a bedwetter because that constant anxiety is as harmful as having the shit kicked out of you. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's yeah. just you don't have those bruises to show. And I just think that something like child abuse, you know, that sexualization of a child... Once that lid comes off, it's very difficult to step back from that. You do feel as a child like you've become dirty somehow. Nobody talks about it.
1: You use the word complicit, which I found really interesting. When I first wrote about my experiences back for my student magazine in the late 90s, I wrote about how guilty I felt. And my editor at the time, who was a pal, so I wrote it anonymously, which I wouldn't do now. I totally put my name on it. And he was like, I don't understand why you feel guilty. And I was like, it's weird, but I do. And, and that is absolutely an emotion that comes with this and how it affects you moving forward. There's a, a heartbreaking line that I was nodding along with in Fingers Crossed. And you say... It took me a very long time to learn that sex is not something that you offer up to people as a way to appease them or make them like you or stop them from being nasty to you. And obviously people have individual experiences, but that is exactly what happened to me as well. And I think a lot of women who have been through what we've been through as children or as older girls will recognise that.
0: Yeah, for sure. Because I think it's about... (laughs) learning about sex and physical intimacy the wrong way around. You know, Mm. you're meant to, you know, feel a fondness for someone and grow close in a relationship, and then you kind of broach that sexual sort of barrier and lose your virginity or whatever. And I think when you've had abuse, it just separates it off from that. It changes how you think of what sex is for, I think that it's very difficult to sort of unlearn that, actually, not least because there's plenty of people who are very happy to exploit that once you've crossed that line.
1: Oh, yes. Oh, yes. (laughs) I think as well, though, a big shock for people who read your book. And I I massive recommend it's such a, a beautiful book. I mean, oof, hard on the emotions, but it is a beautiful book. But I think they will be shocked not only by the abuse, but from where it came from for you. I don't think many people are going to be like, grandma is where that is going to come from. Yes.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I do get, obviously I get asked about Nora a lot and people do say she's the, really the only totally unredeemed character in the book, because whatever I, I mean, not, she isn't really, you know, there are others, but I think as a close family member who features a lot in the book, you know, there's not much to balance her But I do say it's because I kind of got to know her when she was already old and fucking mad, frankly, (laughs) you know. And in a way, I wish I did know what she was like as a young woman. There's probably an explanation there. You know, I just don't think people are pure evil and set out to do horrible, horrible harm to people. Something messed up somewhere that turns them into a, a monster, right? And I don't know what happened to Nora Something clearly did. I think she had a very bitter character. I think she was an alcoholic. I didn't even realise that till I was way older. And in a funny way, and this gets quite contentious, I don't actually think of her as a paedophile because I don't think that she was predatory. I never saw it with any of my friends. My dad never saw it with any of his friends. So although she did paedophilic things... Again, there are different gradations of paedophiles. She was not someone who was interested in other children. It was all about me and, you know, her son and this weird fucking possessive
1: control, no
0: boundary controlled relationship where she just wanted to fucking have us in every possible way to herself. Yeah. So, and that's no less damaging, you um, know. No,
1: absolutely not.
0: But, you know, again, I think sometimes people think of paedophiles as the Dirty Mac Brigade or people who skulk around like children's playgrounds. And it often isn't, you know, as we all know, it's often lovely Uncle Harry, who's like a fucking the life and soul of the party or, you know, a brother who just, you know, I mean, you can't conceive of doing things like that or an older child at school. I mean, you you know, paedophiles just aren't a homogenous blob of predatory evil. And partly that's why they get away with it is because that's what people think they are.
1: I mean, welcome to Pedophile Top trunks listeners. <laughs> I have always been like someone who thinks it is a very positive thing to not just dismiss pedophiles as monsters. And I think I get to say that because of what happened to me. But people want to do that because if you other them, then you don't have to understand them. And it feels less dangerous for your kids and the kids that you know and I I totally understand that but unless we understand what drives people to be paedophiles we're never going to be able to tackle the problem which as you say isn't over there it is within so many people's lives. And it doesn't actually protect
0: children because I would say 90% of people think if they drive their children to school and never leave them alone on the street they'll be protected from that.
1: And that's not how it works. No, no, (laughs) wouldn't that be lovely? But it is absolutely not how it works. There's a line you say in reference to your song, Light from a Dead Star, which I think captures how we, or certainly how I, carry that abuse going forwards. Because we do, we carry it with us. And you say, a vanished past that still casts its effects. Now, you're very candid, I mean, throughout Fingers Crossed, about everything, but about the fact that you, you didn't get on with therapy. So I wondered... How have you learned to deal with those effects? I mean, I I can remember,
0: I still remember being in my very early 20s and partly, I think, because things like Childline launched, I suddenly had this perspective on abuse and neglect And I did then get very angry with my parents. And it was a weird thing because I think most children go through an adolescence where they reject their parents when they're kind of in their early teens. And Mm. only in a kind of, oh, I hate my mom, you know, kind of way, which I never did. I was like, because I was sort of having to justify their good side always. I was always like, no, like my parents are lovely. They're brilliant. They're amazing, you know. So when that kind of final rebellion came and when I was allowed to feel angry with them, I did sort of, you know, not wallow in it, but I did kind of really, really inspect it and write about it. And I ended up writing about it in the music. But I realised that that anger that I felt towards them just wasn't really helpful, actually. Like it was good as a release, but in the long term, it was just like, well, great. Now I don't see my fucking parents as well. So now I'm <laughs> yeah. even more bloody isolated. Yeah, yeah. And also, I did feel like I was damaged. I thought, fuck, I'm, no wonder I'm so fucked up. You know, it all started to make sense. But there was this sort of terrible burden of thinking, oh, my God, I'm. this is going to take years to undo and I'm damaged. And now I, it's going to take me years to catch up with everybody else who's normal And after a while, I just thought, you know what, I can't, it's just too much. I'm just going to have to plough on with life, you know. And it's all very well burying that. But there are times when it comes back, you know, when relationships fail, Mm. certainly when I had children of my own, then it really crashed in because I suddenly could see in my children how young and vulnerable they are. And that complicity that you might have felt as a child yourself, you suddenly realise how totally inappropriate that is and all that anger comes back again at how could anyone do that to a child you know the problem is is my brushes with therapy were unfortunate I've since realized that that's not how therapy works you're meant to try someone that person doesn't work just find someone else you'll find the right person eventually but I wanted a magic wand an immediate yeah and I think that therapy certainly in this country was still a bit nascent you know it was still a, seen a bit as American faddy yeah or yeah. you're completely fucking nuts and you need to see a <laughs> yeah,
1: psychiatrist there's no nuance there's no in between
0: yeah and it feels a bit self-indulgent as well you know the British are quite sort of eye-rolly and like oh poor you like we've oh, all you got need our to problems talk about
1: yourself a bit or... yeah put yourself <laughs> together <yeah.
0: laughs> so I think I wasn't patient enough with it but You know, eventually I did talk a lot to friends. I was a massive diary writer. I kind of thought a lot about it, really. I dwelt on it and I, I, I kind of, you know, flipped back and forth. It's probably a bit like having therapy, but without having a therapist there to just listen to you go on about it. (laughs) You know, I think as long as you can go on about it and think about it and get it out of your system and think about it in different ways, I think you do end up kind of, you know, making your peace with it and thinking, well, a bad thing happened terrible things happen to all sorts of people it's it's how you mend yourself and stop it from poisoning the rest of your life
1: I think similarly I let it define me for a long time and then I was like oh but I I don't want this to define me this isn't helpful and you have to come to that on your own terms and in your own time and I think maybe if you try to go to therapy before you've accepted that then it, it probably isn't going to work you're not ready As we've established, (laughs) throughout your life, you've been surrounded by people who are what I am euphemistically going to term pieces of work. But what is really refreshing in Fingers Crossed is how candid and honest and self-examinatory you are about how you could also be a piece of work yourself. And this might seem a weird thing to say, but I I feel like you take too much responsibility. Is that your way of taking back a bit of control? I mean, possibly, but you know, I'm just very
0: aware that nobody's perfect. I, you know, there's a sort of frustration I have, and I think being online exacerbates this, where people expect people to just be all round lovely, mm. and people aren't. The nicest people will have a dark side. That's normal. Like, I don't think we should be that unforgiving about it. Of course there are people who will, there will be a bad match. You know, you might be the sort of person who can't take a certain be- type of behaviour and therefore you cut those people out of your life. Fair play. But don't be surprised if someone else thinks that they're a great person and mm. and can is more forgiving about that side to them. I suppose, hmm, what am I trying to say? I don't put my own shit out there just to sort of go, oh, look, here's all my terrible side. Please like me still. It's actually like... Look, this is how people are. they're normal. I always think this right. you know when you you meet a new friend or you meet a new lover or whatever, you know there's a spark and you fall in love with that and you think, "Oh, this I've met this wonderful person, and blah blah blah. It only takes a matter of time for a situation to come up where they really fucking piss you off right <laughs> and you suddenly go, "Oh, you're not who I thought you were, and blah blah blah. everybody goes through that. It's absolutely normal. And it's where you go after that. Can you forgive it? Can you overlook it? Does the good outweigh the bad? And are you able to go on with that friendship or that relationship going, look, I know they've got that fucking side to them that pisses me off, like, massively, but they're my friend, la, la, la. Now, I suspect I do have friends who I've known since I was 14, right? I actually know people who only have friends that they regurgitate, you know? They have friends who it's always the last five years, Yeah.
1: right? Yeah.
0: And that I'm quite suspicious of because mm. I think there must be someone.
1: It's like changing jobs all the time. You're like, what? what's going on here?
0: <laughs> yeah, you know, and, and that's fine. And I know people who get through life like that and it makes them very happy. But to me, that's, that's definitely not who I am. So for all the kind of warts and all that I've put into that book, mm. I don't hate those people. You know, I can still harbour a love for how I felt about them when the times were good. You know, I think that a lot of people who have read the book, certainly with the band members, the people who have interpreted that as, you know, well, you obviously hated them and that's why you're so horrible about them. And I'm like, no, I thought they were great. We had a fucking amazing time together. But, you know, there's a point at which you just cross the Rubicon and you just think this relationship is always going to be quite damaging. Yeah, And I can still have fond memories of the good times. It doesn't destroy it all for me. Whereas I think for some people it does. I can't relate to that. So the book is very much about, yes, damaged relationships. I had damaged relationships with my parents. I still fucking love them, yeah. you know? Yeah, And I just think to me, that's what life is like. You meet people, you love them. They are flawed. It's a test. It's hard. And it's how you come out of it. The other side, whether you can still feel that love, you know, for something that was genuinely worthwhile. It's part of your life. I don't want to consign half my life to a dustbin and go, well, that person was a fucking waste of time.
1: And on that note, let's talk about Lush. (laughs) Life as a member of Lush seems, and I do not say this lightly, fucking nuts. Right. It is It's exhausting to read about as beautifully as you write it. I was knackered and you're still only in your mid-twenties. But the fact was, it was exhausting being a female musician at the height of lad culture, wasn't it? You know,
0: the lad culture area was just more of a, you know, that was always there. You know, as much as I kind of eulogise about the indie years and when me and Emma were first going to see bands, of course it was always there. You know, sexism has always existed in my lifetime. So there's never been a walk in the park. It's just that you accept that as part of life. You think, yeah, some blokes are dickheads, some blokes aren't. Some girls are fucking bitches and turn on each other because they're all desperate to fucking score points with the boys. I mean, whatever the fuck, you know, this Mm -hmm. stuff always exists and you just navigate your way through it. I think with the lad culture stuff, it just sort of legitimised it, yeah. where back in the day, if some bloke was acting really sleazy, you would at least have allies going, oh, well, he's a fucking creep. Whereas suddenly, in the kind of Britpop years, someone acts like that. It's like, oh, come on, he's just being a bit of a lad, stop being so uptight, Yeah, which didn't go down well with me, I'm not going to lie. <laughs>
1: It was such a weird liberation for women, wasn't it? Oh, it's empowering to get your kit off. You can down pints like a bloke. Hey, tits, they're great. And the liberation for women, I'm putting that in bunny marks, was very much benefiting the men, right? It was like totally if we empower women to take their clothes off and get pissed this plays right into our hands and yet yeah, it was all done with a "oh, nudge wink we're all being ironic and actually it was so steeped in misogyny and i say that as someone who started her journalistic career writing for the lads mags and the reasons i was writing for the lads mags was because one you got to have a sense of humor which was really important to me and two they saw that as a woman i would get more salacious stuff out of the women i interviewed than when the men went in with those questions so i was absolutely being used as well oh for sure
0: and i totally get you know i've met journalists who wrote for those magazines who will be like oh i feel really embarrassed about it and i think that no. You know, you're fucking journalist. Look, that's the way the wind was blowing. Everybody needs the fucking work. Mm-hmm. I know people who wrote for tabloid papers. Do you know what I mean? Because they needed the money and it paid well. Yeah, yeah. You know, I fucking get it. You know what I mean? We can't all afford to be pure and go, no, I'm only going to write for fucking niche publications and earn no money at all. You know, I mean? <laughs> we've all got to butter our bread. <laughs> but I think, you know, that trap, as you say, of empowerment dressed up as freedom uh, you know, when it's really playing into someone's hands, I mean, that's a constant. You know, I see it now with the bloody Tory government or whatever, yep. you know, like, oh, no, it's really empowering people for people to have zero hours contracts and be able to ho- skip around with whatever job they want to do. And you think, is it though, really? And the answer is
1: no, no, it's not. <laughs> yes. <Okay. laughs>
0: and I felt a bit like that with that attitude, as you say, you know, and possibly because I'd already gone through. What I thought was a very sexist world with some of that Primal Scream kind of dance clubby crowd where I thought I kind of get what's happening here. Like I play the sort of sexy bunny and I get free entry into clubs and suddenly all these people are being nice to me. But I'm having to fit into a very narrow niche To be able to navigate and operate in this world, like don't
1: dare say certain things, otherwise you'll be cast out. And I feel like the two options were be explicit, as in you know, get your tits out, go along with it, or be complicit in that you know it's happening, but you just have to go along with it. Yeah, they were the women's options,
0: (laughs) and I do get you know when people go, oh my god, what about the brick pop boys? They were so awful. I don't actually blame them. You know, I'm sure if I was a bloke, you know, I'd probably sat there and gone well this is fucking great mm. like i get to do whatever i like behave how i want shag who i want and everybody th- seems to think it's fucking marvelous you know and i totally understand why blokes went along with it and do you know i mean i mean clearly there were there's a sort of very unpleasant line where i would draw a line but yeah, yeah. you know i i do understand why even blokes would go well you know it's just a bit of fun what's your problem and not think with well, lots of other girls are enjoying it It must be you that's got
1: the problem because they all seem to think it's okay. I mean, and really luckily, Mickey, as you discovered, there were no double standards at all. Oh, wait, (laughs) absolutely double standards.
0: And, you know, I think it's it's more, you know, if I want to sort of lay blame, I would actually look at the sort of establishment, the stuff behind the scenes for all that you say oh god it must have been exhausting being in lush and reading about all that it's exhausting for blokes in bands as well you know you are all on this treadmill and funnily enough the people who most recognize the stuff in the band section are other people in bands they will all go oh my god I had that kind of relationship with our drummer or I remember that treadmill. Uh, you know, it's a bit Spinal Tap in that way. You know, you you read it and you go, "Yeah, I I know exactly." We had an incident like that. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, look. I hope no one thinks it was just roundly awful. It wasn't. Oh no, it
1: sounds enormous fun as well.
0: <laughs> I was kind of also aware that I wanted to write the book for people who maybe don't know all that insider stuff, and I do think a lot of bands don't talk about that stuff because. They have an image to preserve, Mm -hmm. you know, even for their fans. You Mm -hmm. know, the fans are like, I want to think that this band love each other and that they have, you know, that everything they did was brilliant and every moment was, like, really enjoyable because it was for me as a fan. And it's difficult to hear about people say that, well, actually, no, we didn't get on that well Mm -hmm. and recording that album was a fucking nightmare or whatever. And even stuff about, you know, the money distribution.
1: I do feel like I
0: was lifting the lid on an untold secret but that is how a lot of bands operate yeah you know they may not want to talk about it they may want to sit there and go oh no we're like socialists we share everything equally but I think if you talk to certain other band members they go well it's not quite like that you know
1: mm. <laughs> and it's really interesting particularly with Lush like you've got a lot of shit for being female-led but at the same time the men in the band kind of got ignored
0: yeah, it wasn't great to be a fucking, you know, lush bloke either. And I remember, I mean, that even became a trope eventually. Sleeper bloke, you know <laughs> what I mean?
1: Yeah, I mean, and I'm all for it. I feel like, you know, men have had a good old crack of the whip. So when that does happen occasionally, and it still is only occasionally, I'm like, ah. but but um, yeah, I imagine if you are that man, not fun at all.
0: I mean, partly because there's a cynicism even to that. You know, the girl singer... The girl, sort of in the band, gets shoved to the front almost for the wrong reasons mm-hmm. because it is that kind of eye candy. Oh, let's get her up because she looks a bit sexy and we can put that in the pictures. We won't let her talk about her music. We'll let the blokes do that. But for the photos, yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know yeah, what I mean. Totally. And I think that that causes rifts within the band. You know, everybody's got an ego. Everybody sits there and says, I joined a band because I want it to be stopped in the street and recognised and have my photo in the paper so I could send it to mum, you know. And when you're left out of that and you've got the parents going, oh, you don't seem to be featuring very much in this. (laughs) Like, you know,
1: it's hard to take for your ego, you know. Totally. So, Mickey fingers crossed is published by 9a and available in all good bookshops and I can't recommend it enough it's such a cracking read maybe get some tissues for some of it though because it's it's very sad as well Can I ask you what is next are you going to be doing some more writing The thing that buoys me the most is
0: when people say that they really enjoy the writing mm. right. Which makes me sort of think, okay, well that's a transferable skill. I don't have totally. to come up with more more <laughs> traumatic life events to write about. So so yeah, I haven't really thought it through. I need I I'm not very good at talking about things until I'm actually doing them. Fair and enough. speculating I always feel is a bit like I don't know, <laughs> like bragging before you've got any
1: right to. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? be like me be like oh i don't want to jinx anything but i haven't yeah, done yeah, yet yeah totally okay in that case where can people find you on the internet so that they know firsthand when it is all going to happen oh blimey I've, I've got a twitter that's
0: bareny underscore mickey i think i don't have a blue tick i never have and i'm not going to start paying one pay now for one. Um, what? <laughs> no. i think i'm the same on instagram you are the same and on there's instagram. a lush facebook page which i've slightly hijacked There's a kind of lush official page. I don't know anything about Facebook, so you're just going to have to try
1: and find that yourself. I have no idea. Amazing. Mickey, thank you so, so much for chatting with me. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. (laughs) Also, just, you know, I've got to say before we go, thank you for Pulp. I love the fact that you are the reason that Pulp happened, like, went big. I'm not going to claim that.
0: I'm crediting you. I was in the right place at the right time. And I was purely like, I was lucky to be going out with someone who had some influence. So as a fan, I could rave on about a band and have it picked up by someone. So I was just in the right place. But they were, yes, I love them.
1: You can stay coy about it, but I'm I'm sending you a big thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. and an issue
0: for all women.